and kids can head to kids' church. Kids can head to kids' church. Yeah. Ken, kids, anybody. Yeah, kids' church is available right now. Um, but yeah, kids, head on to kids' church if you're going that way. Uh, that's available. It is good to see Nita Little with us this morning. Um, the flowers you see up front are the flowers um, the funeral home provided in honor of Lonnie uh, and his passing this past week. Um, and it's only fitting <clears throat> that that's today uh, because it's hard for me to think of anyone in the church whose humility was on display more than Lonnie Little. And I think most people who know or anybody who knew Lonnie would agree with that because Philippians 2, where we'll be today, if you want to turn that direction, uh, is a chapter about humility and what that looks like um, in light of Scripture. And my family, we're, we're a history family for the most part. My brother is a history teacher. My dad has more history books than any person I've ever met who hasn't studied history. Uh, so our family, history came easy to me in school. I, you know, we always got good grades. That was the class that if we got a B, we got in trouble in. So, you know, history was just our thing growing up. So we love history. And I particularly love history just because the stories it paints for us and the stories that we can look back on and see throughout our past and learn from those. And as we, I was thinking about this in Philippians 2, some of the greatest stories of humility you'll ever see come from history and specifically military history. Um, I really loved World War II when I was growing up, just the stories and all the different things that um, came out of that. And as I was thinking about this sermon, one of the stories from that era was one that stuck out to me. Um, so here it is. In 1945, uh, so nearing the end of World War II, while the Germans were surrendering, uh, the Japanese were still fiercely defending uh, their homeland. So they were fiercely battling um, the Americans. They were fiercely fighting, even though the Germans were surrendering. And there was a unit that was assigned uh, to the Maeda Escarpment, was the name of the place they were going. And there was a World War II Christian combat medic um, who was assigned in that platoon, headed that direction. And the way this battlefield was set up was there was a, a field on top, and then there was a cliff and a beach. And the beach is where the American troops were. Okay, so they had to climb up the cliff to fight. And when they climbed up the cliff, to try and take on the Japanese, what ended up happening was uh, less than one-third of the guys who went up there came back down. So it was a massacre by any, any gauge. Um, so the American troops went up, they fought, they lost, and came back down. And when they came back down, they were ordered to stay. Said, the commander said, we are not losing any more troops. Stay where you are. But there was one man, that combat medic, who, despite being told to stay, went back up the cliff to see how many survivors were left, to see how many people that could still be saved. And one thing we'll learn about the stories of humility and, and just humility in general is that following Christ, our life in Christ, following Christ requires joyful humility. And we'll see that in Philippians 2, and we'll start at the beginning. So if you're reading with me, you can look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but in much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I may too be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust that the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. <clears throat> I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and open your word and study it together. We pray that as we read through Philippians 2, as we study this passage together, God, that you will enrich our hearts with your word and you will allow it to take root in us just what joyful humility and humility in Christ means. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in Philippians 2 a couple things. Uh, the title of the sermon today is The Sacrifice of Humility. And a couple things we see in Philippians 2 is that we are to be unified and humble. We are to be unified and humble. When we are willing, when we are unified and humble, we are lights in a broken and distressed world. And what we see first is that humility is a mandate for Christians. And we'll kind of work our way backwards through this passage, similar to how we did last week. But humility is a mandate for Christians. And we see humble Christians in Philippians 2. Paul is writing this. He's writing it from prison. Uh, Paul is a humble Christian. He has served the Lord despite his past, despite things that have happened in his history, despite persecution. He continues to follow the Lord. In verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I might be cheered by the news of you. So Timothy, if you don't know, is a third-generation Christian. He is a Christian, a man who has known the Scriptures from an early age. Scripture tells us that. And it, Paul tells us that, that he is a companion of Paul, and he views him like a son. Paul and Timothy's relationship was 
very tight-knit. They loved one another. They were so close in the way that they strived together for the gospel. And Timothy is the best of the best. The best Paul has, he says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. So Paul knows Timothy is the best of the best, and Paul knows that Timothy's are hard to find. And Timothy proved his worth to the church, and he proved his worth to Paul. And it wasn't through his arrogance. It wasn't through his confidence. It wasn't through his charisma. It wasn't through any of those things. Paul says that Timothy proved his worth by his humility and love for the people of God. And when we examine that, we know that we need to be genuinely concerned for one another. That's what being a Christian is. True Christians know that the mandate of the gospel isn't to sit and watch. It's to go and do for one another and for the Lord. And Paul trained Timothy and sent Timothy. He was his most trusted brother. He was sending the Philippians the best that he could send him. And as he did that in verse 23, he says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul is sending Timothy, but Paul desperately wants to be there with Timothy when he arrives. He desperately wants to be with the Philippian people. He has genuine concern for the people in the church. And genuine concern comes with a genuine heart for fellowship. Paul was concerned for these people, and because of that, he wanted to be with the people of God. He wanted to be with the church. He wanted to be a member of this congregation. He wanted to be with the people of God. And Paul sent all the help he could get for the sake of Christ when he saw the Philippian church. He sent everyone he could send. In verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus was a messenger from the Philippian church. They had actually sent him to Paul when they heard about his imprisonment, and he had a gift and some encouragement for Paul. But Paul describes him as a fellow worker and soldier. Notice he doesn't describe him as a fellow lounger and fellow consumer, right? He describes him as a worker, as a soldier for God's kingdom because true Christians work and fight to build God's kingdom. In verse 26, he says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So we see three different servants. We see Paul, we see Timothy, and we see Epaphroditus. And if you study out the life of Paul, we see that he's persecuted. We see that Timothy is persecuted and martyred. We see that Epaphroditus is ill in this passage and falls ill and is near to death. So I want to tell you this. If someone told you that the Christian life was easy, let me apologize to you right now. They lied. When you follow Christ, it is not easy. These three men are a perfect example of that. And when you study scripture and study the lives of Christian servants, even the disciples, all but one of them were martyred and they tried to martyr that guy. So if someone told you the Christian life was easy, it's not. They lied to you. And I'll apologize to you, for them for that right now. You see, because when we are united in Christ, we understand that nothing is more important in Christ, just as we talked about last week. You see, we aren't united in the interest of being spiritual. 
We aren't united because of the love of our church building. We aren't united around church activities and programs. We are united because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all united because we are sinners who are lost but now are found. And we are all sinners who deserved eternal suffering in hell but now get an eternal blessing in heaven. Our unity comes from the joy of our salvation and the burden to see others receive that same salvation. And because of our salvation, we must be humble. And when we are humble, Scripture tells us, humility will be noticed. If by no one else, by God, humility will be noticed. Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Humility requires God's help. We in and of ourselves cannot be humble beings. Humility requires God's help. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works in us for himself. God works in us in our humility for his glory. But God won't work in us in our humility and for God's glory if we are busy doing foolish things. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we play this game on the youth floor called Murder in the Dark. We don't give your kids real weapons most of the time. So just relax. Uh, we play this game called Murder in the Dark, and the idea is that, you know, there's a murderer, and you, you know, you try and figure out who it was, right? That's the whole game. But what we figured out is the loft, the youth floor in this building, is actually a terrible place to play this game, because you can turn all the lights off, you can shut all the doors, and this floodlight out here will still shine through that window. Every time. I mean, it just, every time. It's a terrible place. And what happens is, when the kids come by, if any light shines on them, I know exactly which kid it is. I can see their silhouette. I'm like, bang, that's Gracie. Yep, Isaac, Jaden, Bailey, Brian, whoever it is. When they walk by, I know exactly who it is. And the point of the game is anonymity for the murderer, so it doesn't really work that well in that game. But when we, what you learn from that and what I've learned from that is that even though the room should be completely dark, one light gives enough light to light up the entire room for you to figure out what the game is. You see, the light is minimal, but it is still enough to extinguish darkness. You see, darkness cannot put out light, but even the smallest light can put out darkness. And Jesus says we are to be light, lights of the world. And he says in John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. When we share Jesus, the dark can't overcome us because darkness can't overcome light and Paul talks about a crooked and twisted generation and it's no secret we live in a dark world I think you can look around you watch the news you can see whatever that we live in a very dark world so some updated statistics on that for you uh, last year among the ages of 35 to 44 there was a 14 percent increase in mental health diagnosis that was just the largest one all of them increased you talk about things like abortion, overturning Roe did knock out abortion in many states, but over the last three years, abortion has actually went up 10%, not down. And when you look at last year in 2023, the grand total in America, there were a thousand more drug overdoses than there were the year before, 
which you think in the grand scheme of things isn't that bad until you see the whole number, which is 111,355 people died last year of drug overdoses. The world we live in is dark. It's so dark. And it's easy for us to be overcome by that, and we will be overcome by that if we let it. If we are to be lights in the world, we have to be different from the world. You see, the world is full of grumbling and disputing about things that don't matter, all while there is a world full of sinners bound for hell. And Paul reminds us not to grumble and dispute, and he tells us how. In verse 16, he says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. You see, Paul knows his personal success is all in vain if the church is not unified and working together for the gospel after he's gone. Paul knows he'll be gone soon. He won't hold out forever. He's in prison. He's writing this letter. And he sends someone to carry the gospel in his upcoming inevitable absence. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. A humble life is willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. Paul was willing to sacrifice everything, including his life, for the sake of the gospel. He knew personal success was nothing if the gospel wasn't proclaimed after he was gone. So the question for us is, are we raising up leaders in our churches and homes to be able to continue contending for the gospel even in our absence? Because that's what humble leaders do. That's what Paul did. He understood the most important factor of humility is that is humility requires sacrifice. Humility requires sacrifice. He begins the chapter by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 2 alone, Paul uses a word that represents unity five different times. So when Paul was writing this, he wasn't typing it out, so he didn't have bold, italics, underline, all the things. He couldn't put in bold letters, unity, right? So what they do in that time is they repeat those words so that you'll understand it. And if you read verse 2, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul uses a word that represents completeness or unity five different times in that verse. And he does that because the biggest threat facing the Philippian church isn't heresy, it isn't doctrinal wrongness, and it isn't overwhelming sin. It's disunity among church and squabbling over things that don't matter. And when we go to chapter 4, we'll see that there are things that are senselessly dividing the church. Because the division in the church was dividing around things that shouldn't be divisive. Now, there are things in the church that should be divisive. If we are disagreeing on Jesus is the only way, that should be a division in the church. But the things that the Philippian church were dividing over weren't things that should be divisive. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And the divisive things Paul's talking about are the really, really dangerous divisive things. Because the things Paul's talking about is the division is coming from the one place, the most dangerous place it can come from, and it's coming from the root of all of our sin, and that's selfishness. The thing that is dividing the church is selfish ambition and conceit. Selfishness is the root of all sin. 
The reason we have sin at all is because Adam was selfish in the garden. Abraham's sin was selfishness. David's root of his sin was selfishness. The root of all of our sin boils down to one thing and one thing alone, and that's selfishness. Putting ourselves above our others and putting ourselves above God. So the issue facing the Philippian church is disunity around selfishness. In verse 4, he goes on to remedy the problem and says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone in history could have been selfish, it was Jesus. Yet he is the perfect example of humility. You see, Jesus was God. He had everything. Anything he wanted on earth or in heaven, he could have had it. He was the Messiah. He was the one that God sent to rescue the people of Israel. He was supposed to be a warrior king, someone who would defeat the Roman Empire, would be the guy who defeated and put the people of Israel back on top of the world. That's who Jesus was. So if anyone had the right to be selfish, it was Jesus. Yet he's born in a barn and nurtured in a feed trough to a family that's poor. You see, Jesus' incarnation and descension from a throne in heaven to a cradle in the dirt is the beginning of the greatest act of humility ever committed. And we're supposed to follow that lead. One commentary says that genuine humility involves believers not thinking too highly of themselves and requires that they regard one another as more important than themselves. Regard is from a verb that means more than just having an opinion. It refers to a carefully thought-out conclusion based on the truth. Here's the important sentence. It says, It does not mean to pretend that others are more important, but to believe that others actually are more important. It doesn't mean to pretend that others are more important, but to believe that others actually are more important. And in that commentary, he uses an example that I couldn't top, so you're going to get that example. Um, So he says there is a, a church of individual believers is like marbles in a box. We're all in the church. We're all in the box. You shake the box around, we're all there. We're not going anywhere until the box rips. And then when it does, all the marbles fall. They hit the ground, and they go 100 different directions. The only thing holding them together is the external force that they think matters in the box. Yet a church of humble servants of Christ united in the gospel is like a pile of metal shavings that someone has dropped a magnet in the center of. Rather than being contained by something from the outside, they're all drawn to the thing in the center and cling to it with everything they have. So the question for us is, are we a church that is more like the box of marbles, or are we a church that's more like the metal around the magnet? Are we willing to sacrifice what it takes? Are we willing to drop everything and run towards the God who is pulling us in with open arms? So fathers, husbands, mothers, wives, are you driving your families into the arms of Jesus or are you simply hoping the box doesn't break? Are you driving your family into the arms of Jesus or are you simply hoping the box doesn't break? Our humility and unselfishness are what drives us toward God. Because Jesus was the most humble and committed the most perfect act of humility ever seen. 
Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one sacrificed more than Christ. No one can sacrifice more than Christ. No one was more humble than our Savior. A church that is united in Christ will be united in humility. There are a million bad reasons we aren't humble every day, and one fantastic reason we should be. So are we choosing the reasons that we shouldn't and being selfish, or are we choosing Christ and being humble? And Jesus' death, the beauty of Jesus' story, it just the beauty of Scripture is how it compounds and builds off each other. The beauty of Jesus' death is that his death alone as God was humble enough, but the way he died takes humility to a whole different level. You see, Jesus died on a cross. In that day, crosses were reserved for one very specific type of person. You see, warriors don't die on crosses, they die on battlefields. Good citizens don't die on crosses, they die at home. The Roman cross was preserved for one type of person, and it wasn't saviors, it wasn't perfection, and it certainly wasn't God. The Roman cross was reserved for criminals. Crosses were a means of public execution. A cross was a symbol for all the world to see exactly who you were and what you did. It was an example of what happens to people who commit sins and commit crimes against the empire. It was an excruciating death in front of all your friends, family, and the people you committed your crime against to say, this is what happens to criminals. As God, Jesus shouldn't have had to die at all, but if he had to die, it should have been anywhere but on a cross. As God... Jesus' death was put on display for all to see. But Jesus had to die, and he had to die on a cross. So why? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, as we talked about, Adam's selfishness in the garden brought sin and the curse of sin into the world. And because of that, we see through the whole Old Testament, God requires sacrifice for sin. And Adam's sin ruins perfection, so it required a perfect sacrifice to atone for that perfection. You and I couldn't offer a perfect sacrifice. Only God himself could offer that sacrifice. And when we sin and tell God that my way is better than your way, what that does is that makes us a criminal in front of God. So Jesus' perfect life had to be displayed in a criminal's death to atone for the sin of you and for me. But the good news is, because of that perfect sacrifice, all you have to do to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus as opposed to that eternity in hell with the sinners and those who don't put their faith in Jesus is, as Romans 10, 9 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Jesus' death was on display as the greatest act of humility that was ever committed. Going back to the story we were talking about earlier, the Christian medic at the Maeda Escarpment, or as the Americans called it, Hacksaw Ridge, was a man by the name of Desmond Doss, whose act of humility saved 75 lives that day. So he could have done what his commander said and done what everyone else did and stayed on the beach. He was told, stay on the beach. We're not losing anyone else. But instead... In an act of humility, he sacrificed himself and climbed up that cliff 75 times 
dragging people back to save their lives because he believed that other people were more important than himself. He wasn't like the other people pretending that those people were more important than him. He believed it, and he lived it. Humility doesn't pretend others are more important. It believes they are more important. Folks, the world is a battlefield full of wounded soldiers destined for their physical and spiritual death. So in 2024, let's be the church that finally puts God before ourselves, before our selfishness, and before everything. Let's be the soldiers that crawl across the battlefield to show salvation to the world of darkness, willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the gospel. In a moment, I'll pray. Um, if you have never heard about Jesus or would like to put your faith in Jesus or just learn more, come see me. I'll be down front. For the rest of us that have already put our faith in Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come back to the altar this week and pray with me. Um, as I begin praying, you're free to move down. And pray that in 2024, Scottsville Baptist Church will be a church that puts God above all else and above ourselves. A humble church united in the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to gather and open your word. We thank you for the humble servants like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. We pray that like them, we will be willing to follow Jesus' example in humility, and we'll be able to follow you and put you and others above ourselves. We pray that, God, as we continue through 2024, that you will show us the ways that we are selfish and show us the ways that we can act in humility and honor you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.